0: Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter, and I'm Hayden Ludwig. In this episode, we examine People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA, the animal rights group notorious for killing animals. This is the Influence Watch Podcast. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, better known as PETA, claims it's the largest animal rights organization in the world. But scandal after scandal has revealed a disturbing record of hypocrisy that's left tens of thousands of household pets dead in PETA's kill rooms. Over 36,000 animals since 1998. The carnage is the product of a radical ideology that seeks to end the concept of pet ownership as we know it. PETA is better known for its publicity stunts, each bigger than the last. The group has compared meat-eaters with cannibals, the meat industry with the Holocaust, and the the, the American Kennel Club, which puts on annual dog shows, with the Ku Klux Klan. The activist group is also associated with a number of violent environmentalist organizations, some of which have been labeled domestic terrorist organizations by the FBI. It's even defended one such terrorist with a $25,000 loan for legal defense. Much of the ideology Peta ascribes to can be traced back to extremism that was born in the 1980s, when Marxism mixed with radical environmentalism to create the Animal Liberation Movement. Now, Hayden, welcome to the show. You're uh, one of our Capital Research Center researchers, and in fact, the main person working on PETA uh, for us, uh, whose work can be found at influencewatch.org and capitalresearch.org. And of course, we want to give a shout out this week to Michael Watson, my usual colleague on the show. Uh, He is still on paternity leave and therefore probably earning the ire of many PETA activists Uh, I don't know if he sunk to the level of actually having a dog or cat as a pet, uh, but we'll investigate that and report. Um, Why don't we start with the origin of PETA in the 1970s? What can you tell us about that?
1: Sure, Scott. So People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals was created in 1980 by two animal rights activists, Ingrid Newkirk and um, Alex Pacheco. Uh, They both have background in... What was formerly known as the animal rights movement now they like to call the animal liberation movement. Um, Newkirk herself actually was a um, an animal shelter official in the in the District of Columbia. Alex Pacheco has a little bit more of a colored history before that. He was actually a deckhand on a vessel run by a group called the Sea Shepherd Conservation uh, Society. Uh, sea Shepherd was run by a guy named Paul Watson, who's known as a pirate according to federal courts because he and his ship and his crew, his motley crew, would essentially ram other vessels in the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, uh, trying to stop whalers from whaling off off the coast of Portugal and Japan. So they've got a checkered past. And Watson also had a little criminal issue in Costa Rica, as I recall. That's right, he was actually um, uh, allegedly committed murder. They they found him guilty, although he fled the country before they could actually arrest him, to my knowledge. Well,
0: it's interesting that he's accused of the crime of killing a human being uh, because one of his famous quotations is that he rejects the idea that humans are superior to other life forms. So you didn't have uh, a crisis of conscience when you squashed a cockroach uh, last summer, and he may not have had a crisis of conscience when he killed a human being, because what's really the difference, right? Cockroaches, human beings—how how could we tell the difference? Um, the uh, well, Japan—they
1: especially targeted. Uh, is that correct? That's absolutely right. In fact, the the. Discovery show, Whale Wars, is actually focused on Paul Watson and the Sea Shepherd conservation guys. Um, and that's, that's the show where um, this, this vessel actually attacks and harasses Japanese whalers. And the Japanese government has is, is roundly condemned them as actual modern-day pirates for, for this kind of activity.
0: Now, Pacheco, uh, I believe, still sits on the advisory board. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. They really haven't changed all that much. So uh, it was in the 80s when Newkirk and Pacheco sort of rose to greater uh, fame or notoriety.
1: Um, tell us a bit about how that happened. Sure. So they founded People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, like I said, in 1980. Um, but the organization wasn't well known until they actually discovered a, a laboratory that uh, was located in Silver Spring, Maryland. They and that's in the D.C. area here. That's yeah. right. Uh, Pacheco and Newkirk infiltrated the laboratory, discovered that w- one of the employees was uh, exhibiting cruelty to animals. He was torturing his animals. It was a heinous thing. They ended up getting the authorities to arrest the guy on some uh, something like 113 counts of cruelty to animals. Uh, that sprung them to national prominence.
0: Uh, well, uh, we can all agree that actual cruelty to animals, really is a twisted and bad thing, and and quite, and there have been laws against that for a very long time, uh, and there certainly ought to be. And I could even imagine, to try to be fair to the folks we're profiling here, um, I'm sure it's true that if you work in a laboratory that does animal testing, um, some people doing that work might uh, develop sort of coarseness uh, in their conscience about the, the treatment of animals and the rest. And, obviously, any experimentation always ought to be done as humanely as possible. That is to say, like humans would do, not like animals would do with each other. But, having said that, uh, these are not folks who just care about rabbits and dogs and cats being not
1: handled gently, right? I mean, they are a lot more radical than that. Oh, absolutely. They they have a, an ideology that uh, Peta ascribes to that's essentially misanthropic. It's it's a hatred of humanity. You see this best expressed in Ingrid Newkirk's uh, own words. This is this is an individual who sterilized herself voluntarily at age 22 uh, because she she never wants to countenance the thought of bringing another human being onto this this planet. She's called human beings growing like cancer. She said. Uh, that she she's compared slaughterhouses in the in the poultry and meat industry with Buchenwald, the concentration camp. So uh, real extremist beliefs and hatred of of the human condition. I want to correct you
0: there. The slaughterhouses are Auschwitz's. It's the fur farms that are Buchenwalds. <laughs> My mistake. Uh. <laughs> the um, uh, and I've got a quotation here that I think you dug up for one of your pieces from New York Magazine, just as recently as two thousand and three. Uh, she says, "I'm not. I'm not only uninterested in having children. I'm opposed to having children. Having a purebred human baby is like having a purebred dog. It is nothing but vanity, human vanity." Uh, so, um, uh, why don't you tell us a bit about? Uh,
1: what she thinks should be done with her body after she dies. Oh, oh gosh. She's, she's said that when she dies, she wants to have her liver sent to somewhere in France to be made a foie gras out of, uh, which is a lovely concept. She wants to have handbags made from her skin and an umbrella stand made from her, her seat, her rump, if you will.
0: Yes, well, that's that's lovely. That sounds like somebody you'd want to have <laughs> over to the uh, your barbecue this weekend. That's right. But uh, so um, lots of other people who were an, earlier mixed up in ideas about animal rights or at least uh, exceptional. Humane treatment of animals. Um, the thinking behind that
1: actually goes a good ways back, doesn't it? It does. Uh, the idea of animal liberation really is the extreme version that comes out of simple treatment of animals, uh, humane treatment of animals. You can trace this all the way back to the European Enlightenment, um, where you've got you've got Enlightenment philosophers like Jeremy Bentham, um, who who talk about let's just treat animals uh, less cruel. There's there's no need to do that. Um, Matter of fact, the first society for treating animals better uh, came out of William Wilberforce, the the famous abolitionist who was largely responsible for ending the slave trade in Great Britain. So it has a very modest origin that's since sprung out of control. Yes, but in the 20th century,
0: on the other hand, um, you took this... So especially, you know, if, you, if people who know British culture, I mean, you know, dogs are, dogs are worshipped almost as much in Britain as cows are uh, by Hindus in India, uh, I sometimes think. But um, so that was the initial uh, period for this, this kind of uh, special concern for animals. But in the 20th century, you start getting a really dangerous admixture uh, to this Uh, through Marxism, which no one ever accused of
1: being very pro-human, right? (laughs) So uh, tell us a bit more about that. Oh, absolutely. Mid-20th century, you start getting words like animal exploitation, uh, where this goes above and beyond simple, uh, let's avoid cruelty to animals. Matter of fact, 1965, the British Sunday Times called, quote, the relationship of homo sapiens to the other animals, notice other animals, one of unremitting exploitation. We dug up the website Socialist Worker, which blamed the spread of capitalism for treating animals as a means to an end. Yes, the uh, and I believe
0: the fine socialists, or actually that's too kind of word, um, the communists at the National Lawyers Guild, because we now know that after the fall of the Soviet Union what many people long suspected that the National Lawyers Guild was really a communist front group, in fact, um, but uh, founded uh, back in the, the 30s by the Communist Party USA and still uh, prominent in places like Georgetown University's law school, sadly, Um uh, they called for animal emancipation, uh, all sentient members of the animal kingdom are persons. Now, the irony, I guess, would be something like, well, then what's your view of abortion if if every possible uh, member of the animal kingdom is a person? But uh, somehow I'm suspecting the National Lawyers Guild, I, I didn't look this up, but I don't think the National Lawyers Guild is promoting Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme (laughs) Court as we sit here uh, because of his concern for treating all uh, members of the animal kingdom as persons. I would think not. Um, Well, now, another big uh, turn of the... Or or another big twist of the ratchet here toward more radical and just frankly nutty uh, extremism in this kind of area uh, comes with... uh, you mentioned Bentham comes with a, a, a living
1: utilitarian philosopher, Peter Singer. Uh, tell us a bit about him. Sure, Peter Singer is uh, the arch-utilitarian philosopher, uh, the guy, uh, Australian-born philosopher. Um, he wrote the, the philosophy book. professor, I would say, but well, anyway, yes. I'm sure that's that's a distinction he would not make himself. I'm sure, but uh, he literally wrote the book on what is the animal liberation movement. That called, was the title, uh, right? Called Animal Liberation, very creative. Uh, in 1975, uh, it's it's the manifesto of militant vegetarianism, if you will. Uh, it's it essentially, uh, reportedly, rather, is is the book that in, uh, inspired Pacheco and Newkirk to actually found PETA in the first mm. place. So there is a really tight connection,
0: at least intellectually speaking, between professor Peter Singer uh, and the founders of, uh, of PETA. Well, tell us a little more about Singer uh, that, that you've discovered
1: and then I'm going to chime in because I've done a little digging on Mr. Singer over the years myself. <laughs> well, this is where the misanthropic element of animal liberation ideology comes in. The guy, uh, Singer, has wrote that, quote, torturing a human being is almost always wrong but it's not absolutely wrong. Uh, he's even written things like, surely there will be some non-human animals whose lives, by any standards, are more valuable than the lives of some humans. So you can already see uh, this, this movement of humans are not different from the animals. In fact, we're just a different kind of animal. Therefore, we can be treated to the same low standards uh, as some of the, the people that they, they espouse, uh, they, they decry as uh, cruel to animals. Yes, well, th- that's, that. now that is a really meaty
0: topic, and uh, uh, Singer continues to be important. His most recent, you know, every so many years, you sort of need a new nut thing to be pushing, so that's the way you sell books and get TED Talks and, Uh, keep your fame going. Um, Singer's most recent nuttiness is something called effective altruism. Um, And it's uh, something that I've written a good bit on. And sadly, though, he used to be a understood to be a third-rate philosophy professor in Australia, some genius uh, found a way to sneak him into Princeton. Now, he was not initially brought into the Princeton philosophy department, because my understanding is, because uh, nobody would pretend that he was a prestigious enough Philosophy professor to to be put on the faculty in that way. Instead, they created a little uh, nonprofit uh, 501c3 entity at Princeton, and they that's the entity that he was brought to Princeton on. And then he his he offered to do a free course for the philosophy department is, is my understanding um or or I don't know if it was free I shouldn't say I, I, I guarantee that but he offered to to teach a course and take some of the teaching load off you know a little teaching load off the others and uh but a, and that was sort of the way he got snuck into Princeton and where he of course now is he's Princeton ethicist uh Peter singer <laughs> and um very grandiose uh quite grandiose but the so that was an ingenious uh nonprofit uh influence strategy to to work um but the thing that people should know about just how radical his views are it's it's even worse than the than the way you've laid it out here he actually despite on the one hand he's for animal rights in the most extreme way and on the other hand uh he's not actually opposed to bestiality or it's not in principle wrong because it's never nothing's in principle wrong And even beyond that, to necrophilia, as long as it's consensual. And I know I sound like an insane man, but I swear to you, you can can look it up. Um, Wesley Smith, uh, who is a much more sound bioethicist, has written a great deal and documented this in Singer's writings. So Wesley, if you Google Wesley Smith, Peter Singer, you can find out about consensual necrophilia. So... Uh, he's he's really quite a piece of work, this this Peter Singer guy. And you also mentioned the thing about how some non humans will be more valuable than humans. Now, oh, yeah. this is another bizarre paradox, like the animal rights plus bestiality, both you know both make sense, supposedly, and and fit together somehow, supposedly. Well, Singer actually has family members. He's uh, of Jewish extraction. He has family members uh, who suffered in the Holocaust. And you would think of anyone, and he's a Princeton ethicist. So you would think that he would appreciate the uh, idea of defending the inherent and infinite dignity of every human life. But you would be wrong. Um, one of the most important things to remember about the Nazis is the vicious stormtroopers, who were who were bestial, one might say, <laughs> um, but the 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 the, the beast-like stormtroopers of the Nazis, um, who happily rounded up uh, Jews by the uh, truckload and sent them off to be killed like animals, they weren't the beginning of the loss of appreciation for the infinite value of every human life. That actually happened back in the uh, the more mi- far milder, l- very liberal Weimar regime that was before the Nazis, where you had doctors uh, it was it was good liberal German doctors, not Nazis who wrote a book in the 20s called um, uh, who wrote a book uh, in the 20s explaining that you know not all life is sacred that we should stop that notion and and uh, in fact some life is not worth living. And Therefore if it isn't worth your living that life, then my taking it from you can't really be a bad thing, right? So that started then and then even with the Nazis the very first stuff you begin to where the Nazis first in any public way begin to show their bloodthirsty disregard for human life is with euthanasia. There was a very famous case which came out which is thoroughly documented in the Nuremberg trials afterwards where this couple had uh, a child who was, had very grave birth defects. And the Fuhrer's personal physician visited them and explained, well, it's okay, we're gonna, we're gonna let you kill this child, it's okay, because, you know, there's a good chance if you have another child, he'll be a better citizen of the Reich. And so you're, so you're allowed to do this. Now, to be fair to Singer, again, I'm, I'm making, not making this up, it's all in black and white and in, the, in, in his writings, you can find a discussion of this in one of his ethics books, where uh, he is actually making the same kind of argument, exactly the same kind of argument, that it's okay to let you kill your handicapped kid because, uh, you know, there's a, that kid's not going to have much happiness, and you might be able to have another kid who would be happier and so it's all okay. Now, he tries to claim that somehow this is different from Weimar, but there's no real argument because it isn't, of course, in any way different from Weimar or the early Nazis who are beginning to erode the classic sense that the Western civilization has always had that human beings,
1: dogs, and cockroaches are not all the same thing. Well, and not and not to harp on on the National Socialists too much, but I would make the point too that uh, let's not forget that Hermann Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe, the air force, right in the 1930s and 40s, uh, was also little known. the the chief I don't recall the exact name, the chief environmental officer, if you will, of the Third Reich. That was a that was a position that he held very dear. Uh, and there's actually there's a lot of cases uh, in a great book from the early 90s called Animal Scam that I dug up for this project where they they actually go in and they find many quotations uh, talking about how Adolf Hitler was, was a strong uh, vegetarian who believed, I'm not saying vegetarianism is fascistic or anything like that, but he equated his uh, vegetarianism with Value of human life, animal life—they were—they—they they had a very strong connection there, while at the same time having absolutely no ethical qualms about devaluing human life, like putting them in cattle cars, for instance. So there is a, a strong theme. I wouldn't necessarily say that Peter Singer is the culmination of Nazism or anything like that. I wouldn't make that claim, but there is that kind of worrisome. Uh, Example of what what uh, this kind of militancy looks like when it's in state control and there's no There's no uh, philosophical or ethical things to stop that from going any further.
0: Yes, it's 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 really shocking uh, how how that blends and uh, Russell Kirk actually once said abstract sentimentality because there's the, the the animal rights stuff at first when it begins to get extreme it just seems very sentimental I could never even hurt a little kitty cat. All this sentimentality, but abstract sentimentality can lead to real uh, brutality. Uh, That's just a historical fact in in multiple cases like this. Well, let's get back to our friends at PETA themselves, their ideology is not just something that they put in their direct mail to get nice amounts of money. I should say they have a lovely headquarters here in D.C. Very, very, I shudder to think of the real estate value uh, of the headquarters here. And, <laughs> well, they have, and they have offices elsewhere, too, of course. With but, a nice big elephant out front, I should add. Yes, yes. Uh, so they have not just put this in uh, pamphlets and direct mail, they have made this into active campaigns uh, against various industries and the rest, like the meat industry. So tell us a bit about their work
1: against the meat industry. Absolutely. So it goes without saying that, that PETA is vehemently anti-meat, um, but it's it's essentially opposed to the use of animals in any kind of commercial form. Uh, they've, in their extreme campaigns to end these things, to go veggie, as they say, um, PETA actually seized on a uh, a horrible murder some years ago, I believe 2009, of a Canadian uh, man about age 22 uh, who was decapitated and partially cannibalized. They ended up producing an advertisement uh, and it was meant to spur people to think about the terror and pain experienced by animals who are raised and killed for food. Uh, it, it basically described... An innocent young victim whose throat is cut. His struggles and cries are ignored. The man with a knife shows no emotion, and it goes on from there. Uh, but essentially, going back to our main point of leveling, the difference between murdering a human being and eating him, uh, and doing the same thing to an animal. To them, it's it's perfectly one and the same. Uh, they to be and and to show that they are,
0: are appreciate diversity. It isn't just land animals that they care about, correct? They've also (laughs) gone against... Uh, they've also gone uh, risen up in defense of the
1: fishes. Oh, absolutely. My favorite is a, is a comic book from some years ago called Your Daddy Kills Animals. This is for small child uh, children to imagine how their dad uh, can dangle a piece of candy in front of you and as you grab the candy, a huge metal hook stabs through your hand and you're ripped off the ground. In other words, you are a fish. And you have to ask your father, how could you be so cruel? How could you murder these poor fish? when he takes you out to go do something like, I don't know, fishing with him on the weekend. Yes. And meat plus fish and clothing as well, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. They, they actually just disclosed as late as 2016 that, that PETA spent something like two, uh, $10.5 million in an international campaign. And it was, it was aimed at the food, clothing, entertainment, and general uh, animal laboratory testing kind of uh, industries. They organized something like 2,400 demonstrations in order to shut a lot of these industries down or simply to change certain practices within them.
0: Well, uh, now let's step it up a notch to some of the more really extreme um, things that they have ties to in a way. Uh, They have not been accused themselves of committing terrorism, I believe, but uh, nonetheless, they have ties of a kind to domestic
1: terrorism, is that correct? Absolutely. This goes back to the 1970s and before, with uh, with groups like Peter Singer, uh, but who take their militancy to to a violent level. Uh, two organizations that have the FBI is labeled domestic terrorists: the Animal Liberation Front and the Earth Liberation Front (ALF and ELF, respectively) um, have disturbing ties to PETA. Um, They've gone back and they've shown that since 1979, these organizations and related extremist groups, which still operate in cells, by the way, have cost some $110 million in damages to private companies and individuals in the last 40-something years. So they're a serious threat to the United States. And human life. And human life. Uh,
0: and uh, PETA has serious money ties. To them
1: as well over the years. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, Rodney Coronado was an ALF uh, terrorist who uh, was, was actually, he was charged with domestic terrorism. Um, PETA gave him $70,200 in a grant that was intended, it was a loan that was never meant to be paid back, allegedly. Uh, and the loan was meant to pay for his legal fees, uh, to defend himself from the firebomb campaign against multiple universities that he was he was accused of, and I believe later convicted of. Um, so my recollection is that the
0: FBI, uh, no less than the FBI, is on the record about these ties that we're talking about. These are not just wild allegations we're making.
1: Yeah, it, there's a 2001 report by the FBI uh, that says, Peta, quote, can be considered at providing at least tacit support for the Animal Liberation Front in its illegal activity. So that's the Federal Bureau of Investigation saying that PETA is involved in some very, very serious things. Uh, well, um,
0: these charges are at least somewhat complicated uh, to make the case for, but there is no trouble whatsoever in making the case for PETA's
1: own, ironically, animal side. <laughs> right? That's right. Um, making the rounds right now is is a lot of news um, surrounding uh, new light being shed on PETA's practices with the animals that it keeps and, and murders, actually. Uh, PETA has been known to euthanize the overwhelming majority of the animals it takes in. Uh, its headquarters down in Norfolk, Virginia, um, has a, a large facility for taking in um, strays, uh, animals that, that pet owners give them, um, all sorts of them. They've, uh, they've done reports, the state of uh, Virginia has done reports uh, on PETA's uh, headquarters showing that since 1998 it's killed over 36,000 dogs and cats. Um, that's something like 90% of the pets it takes in a- every year, it euthanizes. So uh, again, this
0: the the, free, the, the the freaky ideology, which I mean this this to me shows real nihilism, right? On the one hand, um, there must not one cow may become a shoe, uh, not one fish may be eaten, but tens of thousands of pets may be killed uh, because really we're sort of at war with the very idea that human beings and their animal companions should ever actually be mixed up with each other. So, uh, (laughs) I mean, it it just strikes me as as astonishing, nihilism. And and they are very emphatic, right? That, again, back in Victorian England, where a hundred years ago you saw this, you know, you saw some of the great efforts to encourage genuine humaneness toward animals. Of course, they all loved their their dogs and cats.
1: Um, But PETA hates the very idea of dogs and cats, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. It, it's the war on pet ownership. And, you know, to their credit, their defense is that it's the, it's the various industries and in our obsession with pets as a, as a society that's responsible for what they deem to be pet overpopulation in the world. So uh, when they bring in animals, they, they claim that they always try to find um, new homes and owners for those animals, and the ones that they can't get, uh, they, they euthanize. In reality, though, uh, we have cases, there were there years where uh, PETA's killed well over 97% of the animals it's brought in. Um, it, in the Atlanta, actually reported some years ago that Pet accepted something like 760 dogs. It killed 713 of them. I have a hard time believing that 713 dogs that are brought in are, are so beyond hope that no human being will take them in. I just simply don't believe that.
0: The, um, well, and there was a uh, uh, Stanford Law graduate, Nathan Winograd, you quote in one of your reports, talking about what a lie that the, the PETA claims are in this, uh, and I, it's worth reading at length here. It is a lie because rescue groups and individuals have come forward stating that the animals they gave PETA were healthy and adoptable. It is a lie because testimony under oath in court from a veterinarian showed that PETA was given healthy, adoptable animals who were later found dead by Peta's hands, their bodies unceremoniously thrown away in a supermarket dumpster. Uh, so yes. it's, shameful. it's 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 genuinely shocking, and it also shows that these paradoxical, irrational combinations of ideas uh, are so nihilistic that in the end it produces what Dostoevsky taught nihilism produces, namely mass death.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, And, and, you know, there was another uh, PETA employee, Heather Harper-Troy, who very recently, I believe it was last year, um, made the claim that PETA euthanizes what she calls highly adoptable puppies and kittens. And she, she even says that it's often on Ingrid Newkirk, the, the founder of PETA, on her direct orders. Um, and th- their idea there that she was, she was saying is that it's a waste of time and money for PETA to try and find pets, uh, owners to take over the pets. It's much cheaper to simply dispose of them. And, you know, it doesn't help that they've got a massive $9,300 walk-in refrigerator with four large trash cans uh, for corpses before they're, they're cremated in there, according to the ex-employee.
0: The same ex-employee also said that she was told by supervisors that when you're talking to people who are going to hand over their animals to you, you tell them, oh, we're going to find great homes for them, even though you have no intention whatsoever of, of perpetuating
1: the evil of petness. Oh, yeah, it's, it's in the state of Virginia where they're headquartered. There is a five-day wait period from the time that PETA receives the animals to when they're, they're illegally allowed to put them down if they can't find ownership. And I'm sure there's some exceptions to that. But her point was simply that oftentimes they'd, they'd have pets, hundreds of pets that were euthanized within 24 hours of being delivered. That doesn't smack of an organization that's seriously bent on trying to find new petted owners to adopt them. That's right. Well, let's let's shift over now to the funding of PETA, because it is a multi-million
0: dollar organization, as I said, with lots of nice real estate, hither and yon. Uh,
1: what are some of the f- basic facts about their funding? So most of PETA's funding seems to come through uh, the Foundation to Support Animal Protection, or the PETA Foundation. Um, it's taken over $40 million in grants since 2000. Uh, the strange thing is, since 2004, $28 million of that has come from this relatively obscure private foundation, Nancy's Animal Rights Foundation. It's headquartered down— ARF, in- I notice, is the acronym for that. ARF. Nancy's ARF, as she loves to call it. It's down in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, it's given $65 million to a handful of animal rights groups since 2004. About half of that, $30.4 million, has gone to PETA and the PETA Foundation— The other 33 or so has gone to the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, which is a a, a social justice activist group that's closely aligned with PETA and their ideology. Uh, Well, they also have uh, donations from a quote-unquote Dark money machine is that not right? That would be the Tides Foundation, our favorite dark money machine. The Tides Foundation is a major uh, pass-through organization for left-wing organizations. Uh, It's also famous for incubating other organizations, which you could probably explain better than I could. (laughs) The uh, yes, well, they
0: they 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 help uh, not left-wing nonprofits get off the ground, or if you just need a little left-wing nonprofit for just a few weeks at the very end of a political campaign, and then you need it to go poof and disappear. Uh, they can do that for you as well. Um, we should add there that the John L. New Family Foundation, uh, which also supports the Brennan Center for Justice, the greatest opponent of, of uh, voter integrity uh, in America, arguably, and the National Resources Defense Council, uh, the New Family Foundation has given PETA uh, four hundred thousand dollars just in the last few years here. Um, uh, well, the uh, this is quite an impressive organization, and again, I would just say that the the Philosophy, to me, the most disturbing thing, even I'm very disturbed by all the slaughter of animals unnecessarily and disturbed by, by lots of the crazy rhetoric, but this seems to me that the single greatest danger is that this kind of nihilism, this kind of nutty philosophy, actually is completely at odds with the principles of the country's founding. I mean, we are a republic because we have the idea that, as they said in the Declaration of Independence, that... um you know, you should only be ruled by your consent. I don't have a right, I have no right to rule you unless I can persuade you using reason that to go along with me in the making of laws, the creation of a country like this and the rest. So it's it's the human capacity to reason, to give and listen to reasons and to give consent, informed consent about, yes, I will agree with you, let's Put this constitution together and let's live under the constitution. That, you know, the essential thing about human beings that all this craziness ignores is the fact that I have a, a dog, but I've never been able to give or receive reasons for anything from my dog, where he, he and I are never going to live uh, in, with cons- mutual consent in that way. <laughs> um, so, if there's really no difference between me and the dog, then there's really no basis for the f- a form of government that's self-government that involves giving and, and receiving reasons and giving consent to uh, live under the same laws. So it, it strikes me that that's the most extreme aspect of, of
1: the sort of thing that we're talking about. I, I, would, I would 100% agree. I, I think if if PETA were merely focused on trying to help the situation of... of threatened, endangered, injured, whatever animals, uh, that would be one thing, and a lot of their activism could be excused as passion, right? But at the end of the day, the the the, tre- the mass euthanasia of animals is so disturbing that it, it lends that nihilism that you talked about. It gives it an air of treating animals like their fifth columnists colluding with, uh, you know, the pet owners who feed and take care of them. Uh, And and it's just, it shows disturbing light uh, just on how that organization thinks and and operates. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks so much, Hayden. And thanks for filling in for
0: our Mike Watson, which we hope to see see again soon. That is our show for this week. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, you should know that we broadcast a live video version of the podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays. That's available both on Facebook Live and YouTube. And you can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. And of course, if you're watching the video, we want to encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.